Good evening, gang. Our crew's getting a little smaller. That's okay. When the sacrifices are reinstituted, you guys will know what to do. That's the good news. All right. So this is obviously the the you know the the Israelites who really love the Lord are here tonight. So way to go. Thanks for being here. There'll probably be extra crowns in heaven, or at least a jewel or two for uh, sticking it out through uh, the ultimate sticky pages. Uh, So let's pray, and we'll get rolling. Lord, thanks for each of these friends uh, who love you, Father, and uh, want to know your word. And so uh, I am humbled to be in their presence. And uh, just pray, Father, that as we open your word tonight, that your spirit would illuminate it in each of our hearts. And that uh, we'd have understanding that you indeed are a holy God and that um, we must come to you on your terms. But you, Father, seek to reach out to us in a way that uh, is just totally unexpected, totally gracious, and just full of mercy. And for that, we are grateful, Father. So thanks for this time. Uh, May we have a fun evening of uh, learning more about you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, one of the great things about... uh, um, doing the journey is, uh, and being responsible for the journey is that um, we hear from people who are on the journey. And so I want to start tonight, I want to read you a little um, email that we got uh, from a journey reader who is struggling, um, I guess you'd say, with Leviticus. The subject is, oh well, okay? And it kind of goes downhill from there. Um, Hello there. God told me to read the Bible with watermark this January, and I was really able to do it after many, many years. However, when we went on holiday in April, it wasn't possible to get the daily mails, and I couldn't get to my favorite Bible version. Offline, they were online only, and uh, those who weren't just added to the boredom of the Old Testament. I had enjoyed reading Genesis but I learned to hate reading Leviticus. I mean, can you empathize with that a little bit? I mean, I love this letter. I love the honesty of this email that just says, hey, I'm struggling to understand uh, what, from all appearances, is a tough book. And she goes on and says that she even tried to read it in Spanish. She apparently is learning Spanish, and she loves learning Spanish, But that didn't even work, okay? Um, And she says that uh, um, she found it as boring and depressing in any language. So when I had finally caught up to the current day, she'd been behind because she'd been on holiday. I I don't think she's actually here in the States. She's using British spellings and talking about holiday and whatnot. And, you know, the fun thing about the journey is that we have, we send out over 11,000 emails a day. We've got readers on the journey in all 50 states, and we've had people from 141 countries who have come to the journey website. So how they know all that, I don't know, but they do. Trust me. Remember, 90% of statistics are made up on the spot. All right? Okay. And so she finally catches up, and what does she get? She gets Leviticus. And she, she goes on, she says, because now I had to read two capital letters, boring and devastating chapters a day. What is that torture for? 
two chapters a day with, quote, and then he killed an animal, and then he killed another animal, and smeared its blood on the altar, and on his own, and on his brother's toes? No, I can't stand it anymore. I can't stand it. I just can't. I've got to go back where I came from, not reading the Bible. Okay. Uh, And then she adds, P.S., sorry, I just had to tell someone. Okay? And so, man, I am glad that she told us, okay? And so, um, have y'all ever felt like that reading through Scripture? I know I have. Okay? And so, one of the, the goals of Sticky Pages is trying to make the sticky pages in our Bible not quite so sticky. Okay? And so, um, uh, we had a chance to respond to this. Leah, are you back there? Stand up. This is the famous Leah Vick. She is the journey coordinator and the equipping team coordinator. And let me read you a portion of uh, Leah's response. Uh, I didn't tell her I was going to do this. She, first, she starts off by saying uh, about how she has struggled in reading Scripture uh, at different times and whatnot. And then she goes on and she says, That being said, probably the one of the best things I did in terms of trying to dig deeper into the seemingly less interesting parts of Scripture was to ask myself the question, what does this reveal to me about the Lord's character? While reading through the book of Genesis this past fall, I focused on this question as I read through each chapter. She's doing that part of the women's study, I think. Or was that on the... When were you reading through Genesis? Just with the journey, okay. Um... And so she was asking, what does this reveal to me about the Lord's character? I tried to pick out and focus on one thing I learned about the Lord, his character, how he relates to his children, or uh, his promises. I walked away from the book of Genesis with an overwhelming thankfulness in my heart as I grew to understand the character of God as I saw it through the lives of Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Hagar, and Sarah. When I did this, it radically changed the way I viewed Scripture and the Old Testament that I uh, had previously had trouble sticking with reading. I have continued to do this through uh, uh, Exodus and into the book of Leviticus. Personally, reading through Leviticus has revealed to me over and over the holiness of the Lord, my inadequacy apart from the Lord's holiness, and my constant need to live in obedience and dependence on the Lord. I just thought... Wow. I said, that was a great answer. And I hope it encourages um, this young lady to keep reading and keep struggling through. If you're sitting out there, forgive me for uh, using your uh, email, but I am so grateful that um, you sent that email. That email blessed me because it expressed the frustration that a lot of journey readers have had in reading through Leviticus. Um, So, you know, gang, um, hang in there. And I hope that this class has helped you uh, put a little context to the book of Leviticus that'll make it even easier the next time you read through the book. And so tonight, we're on to the portion where um, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, a bunch of chapters. So I'm not going to dilly-dally tonight. We're going to be covering uh, uh, chapters 11 through 15, and then also 17 through 22, and uh, most of them deal with uh, rules and regulations. And as I was sitting there thinking about that, I went, you know, there are a lot of rules and regulations in here. 
But then um, it dawned on me that, hey, you know, I have seen the United States Code. Anybody else seen the United States Code? Well, the United States Code, in all its glory, takes up 10 bookshelves in the Library of Congress. And so we're comparing that with 613 commandments in uh, the Mosaic Law, okay? So, you know, the Lord was actually pretty succinct in dealing with that, okay? The uh, um, U.S. Um, code runs to something like, uh, and this may include the Code of Federal Regulations or whatnot, but it's like over 200,000 pages, Okay, so that's the, the laws of this country and only the federal laws. Doesn't include the state laws or the um, municipal laws or things like that. So, you know, God actually is pretty succinct uh, as we look at that. All right, so quick review. We're doing Leviticus on the basis of four words, and those words are holiness, worship, reminder, Every part of what we're going to do tonight needs to be a reminder that, hey, this is not a rule or regulation to rip us off, as Wagner says, but they are guardrails to protect us. You know, God has the advantage in making laws that he can look into the future and see how these laws are going to impact man. Okay, and then finally, the fourth one is response. How are we to respond to uh, um, the things that we're learning about God, and how are we to live in the presence of a holy God? All right, another slide I want to keep taking a look at is salvation in the Old Testament and the New. And remember, we've been making the point that people establish a relationship with God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in the same way. And that's always on the basis of faith. And it's not an accident that Abraham is the picture both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament because he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. The Old Testament looked forward to the coming Messiah. Um, We now have the opportunity to have the scriptures pointing us to the Messiah who's already come and who has suffered on the cross for you and me, was... um, Um, buried and resurrected, and because of that resurrection, we can have confidence that one day we will be with him forever if we've put our trust in him. The way we maintain that relationship is is also in the same manner, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's on the basis of obedience. The Old Testament was obedient to the law, the Mosaic law, Um, Did I say that right? The Old Testament was obedient to the Mosaic law. We have the law of Christ. It's not specified uh, quite as um, orderly or in, in, you know, um, verse after verse as the um, Mosaic law is. But the law of Christ is sprinkled throughout uh, the Gospels and the New Testament. These are the one another's of Scripture. These are the things that Jesus commanded us to do. These are the things when he talks about in the Great Commission to go and make disciples. Remember, that's our mission. The mission of Watermark Church is to be and make disciples. 
uh, the go and the baptize and the teach, those are things that explain that main verb in the Great Commission to uh, make disciples. And so part of the um, explanation is that we are to teach what? We're to teach all the things that Jesus commanded us to do. Wagner's been in Acts, uh, or in John 14 and 15, and um, he's never been better, in my humble opinion, than uh, as he's gone through John 14 and 15. Um, uh, the the uh, John 14, 15 just sticks in my mind that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so how is that any different in um, procedure than what we're reading in uh, Leviticus. We see the same thing throughout the chapters we'll be looking at tonight. The Lord is saying, keep my commandments. It's not to uh, be a burden to you, but it's to give you an opportunity to live life to the fullest, to experience life to the fullest. Okay? Does that make sense? Is everybody with me? We talked a little bit last week also about the law of liberty. Because our, our Christian, uh, our, uh, the law of Christ is um, modified, if you will. It's uh, part and parcel of it is the law of liberty. That I cannot do things that will cause my Christian brother to stumble just because I have freedom to do it in Christ. Okay? And so, you know, one of the things we're going to be talking about uh, um, um, tonight in Leviticus 19 is the uh, uh, great statement, um, and Christ elevated it to be you know, one of the two great commandments, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, And so as you think about other people, you have the opportunity to live that out. You live out loving your neighbor as yourself as you go through your daily interaction. And you can see in uh, uh, Leviticus 17 through 22, that uh, played out in those laws. Okay? All right, so last week we talked about the offerings. You guys now are uh, experts, or at least you've heard the words burn offering, grain offering, peace offering, um, sin and guilt offerings. And uh, the last part of uh, 6 and um, the, uh, chapter 7 have instructions for uh, the priests. And uh, uh, as you think about the offerings um, let's just spend one second going back through them. The burnt offering was the most common offering. It was offered daily, morning and evening. There's a, a great uh, reminder word in action. And it symbolized the daily renewal of Israel's full concentration to God. And that typically was followed by a grain offering. Um, and the grain offer offering acknowledges God as the source of material blessing, a practical means of sharing what God has provided for my livelihood, not only with the priest, but I get to share it with my uh, family as well. The sin offering provided cleansing and purification for the Israelites so that, uh, Israelites so that the people could come into the presence of a holy God. And then the uh, key characteristic of the guilt offering was that it required restitution upon violating the rights of uh, or property of either God or man. And so think reparations when you think about restoring relationship. And remember how there was also a, a 20% uh, uh, fine, if you will, that was added on top. 
And then finally, the uh, uh, peace offering was optional and voluntary. It was an expression of praise and gratitude. And um, um, I misspoke. The grain offering was uh, shared with the priests, but the peace offering was the one that culminated in the offerer and the, uh, the offerer's family uh, having the opportunity to enjoy a festive meal in the tabernacle area. And even though it's put third in the uh, uh, chapters of Leviticus, it likely was uh, the um, um, final offering, the, the kind of the concluding offering, uh, if you will. And then we've also, uh, uh, the first week we had gone through Leviticus 8 through 10. And remember, this is uh, um, where we kind of fill in the gaps in Exodus 40, we have the temple being dedicated, or uh, I'm sorry, the tabernacle being completed and uh, dedicated. And part of that dedication was to ordain Aaron and his sons um, to the priesthood. And so in Leviticus 8, we talked about the consecration, how they were set apart to ministry. And we saw Moses offer uh, sacrifices there. And then in Leviticus 9, we saw... Um, Aaron take over the uh, uh, role of offering the sacrifices as the high priest. And so we called that one beginning of ministry. And then in Leviticus 10, we had uh, kind of a, you know, whoa, wake-up call sort of thing. And we had um, the sons of uh, Aaron, um, Nadab and Abihu, do something that caused God uh, to take them home. They... Uh, uh, were zapped right there by fire coming out uh, from the altar, uh, the scripture says. And uh, we understood or we had a chance to understand that God is indeed holy and he's not fooling around. We're not exactly sure what they did uh, in offering some sort of strange fire, but it caused um, uh, ultimately their death. And I picked out a couple of verses from Leviticus uh, 10 and uh, they're up here on the screen. Um, because it really sets up what we're going to do tonight. In Leviticus 10, verses 11, uh, 10 and 11, um, the people were told that you were to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you're to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. And so this was the priesthood's responsibility. Okay? And you know, gang... As we sit here tonight, we have uh, similar sort of responsibilities as uh, the priesthood of believers uh, who belong to Christ, okay? So we're to distinguish between the holy and the common in the way that we live our lives as a testimony uh, being watched by those around us. And we're to distinguish between the, the clean and the unclean, and we're to in accordance with the uh, uh, Great Commission, we're to teach the people uh, what the Lord has spoken uh, in the New Testament, the commands that Jesus gave to us in the New Testament. And so these verses ought to ring home with us that just as uh, Israel was to be a nation of priests and a holy nation, we too are to be uh, believer priests, and we are to be a holy nation as unto God. Okay? Are you with me on that? We have those same responsibilities, and that's what makes Leviticus so pertinent to uh, each of us. All right, so in 11 through 15, I focused on some C's, and we'll talk about each of these chapters, but just quick overview. 
In Leviticus 11, we're going to be talking about clean and unclean. In 12, we'll be talking about childbirth. In 13, we'll be talking about conditions of the skin. In 14, we'll talking about, uh, be talking about cleansing those conditions. In 15, didn't quite fit, um, but there was a C in there somewhere, okay? And so we'll be talking about discharges, okay? We won't be talking much about discharges, but uh, we will be talking a little bit about them, okay? All right, so um, let's also t- look at what we're going to do with Leviticus 17 through 22. And there we really start focusing in on uh, personal and priestly holiness. And so we deal with food, sex, God, neighbors, and other nations in 17 through 20. And then we deal with uh, personal purity for the priesthood. And then we also deal with offerings. And we'll talk about uh, each one of those uh, as we go along. So let's go back to uh, chapter 11, okay? Let me do just a little bit to kind of set the scene for this. So these five chapters really pick up the idea that's been introduced in Leviticus 10, verses 10 and 11, like I I just read you. So we're to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean. And this section culminates in Leviticus 16, which we'll study next week, the Day of Atonement, in which there was a cleansing of the entire nation. Okay, and we'll talk about the Day of Atonement next week. And so these chapters on purity really help us understand what uncleanness means and how to teach um, or to teach how the holiness of God requires cleansing and purification from the contaminations of this life. And so as you can see on the slide up here, the rationale behind the order of these laws seems to really kind of lie in the length of time uh, that a person would be considered unclean. And so if you violate one of the laws in Leviticus 11, it resulted in uncleanness for usually a a matter of hours. And with chapter 12, um, in childbirth, there was uncleanness for um, up to uh, weeks. Then in 13 and 14, the uncleanness could go on for years. And then in 15, it could be hours, weeks, or years. And so, you know, you think, okay, so, I mean, how does all this fit together? Well, really, you've got to look back at Genesis because Genesis 1 through 11 will help give a clue uh, to what what God is doing here Uh, because the order of the purity laws, for example, in in Leviticus 11 follows that of the creation of animal life in Genesis 1. And so just as in Genesis 1, God uh, distinguished between good and evil in his new creation, he saw this and it was good, Um, Also in Leviticus 11, God distinguishes the clean from the unclean. And if you go back and think about Leviticus 11 through uh, even up to 16 and compare it with what's going on in Genesis 1 through 11, you'll see that there are a number of parallels. Something else to keep in mind as we go through, uh, uh, particularly uh, this section in general, and uh, it starts in Leviticus 11, uh, the statement, I am the Lord, occurs 49 times throughout Leviticus. And it identifies Israel's God as the ever-living, ever-present one. And so every aspect of daily life was affected by the reality of the presence of God. And that's why uh, Schultz, remember the slide from last week, um, um, he 
outlines or he underscores the key to understanding Leviticus is the presence of God. And because God is present in the camp, he's a holy God and he requires his people uh, to be holy as well. And so, you know, the New Testament teaches that the food laws are no longer binding on uh, us today, okay? Uh, um, in Acts, you see uh, um, Peter having a vision that uh, um, the Lord uses to declare that everything uh, now is okay for us. But not everything's necessarily profitable, and that's where the law of liberty comes in. And so, you know, these food laws really symbolize uh, God's choice of Israel. They served as constant reminders of God's electing grace that he had picked them. He was their chosen, or they were his chosen people. And as he had limited his choice among the nations to Israel, so they, for their part, would limit their diet to certain animals. Does that make sense? And so, as you think about trying to explain why uh, there is a difference between clean and unclean uh, animals, the scholars have come up with at least six uh, proposed explanations. And so I want to talk about each one of those. And so some say the distinction is just simply arbitrary. You know, God simply told the Israelites what to do to test their obedience. Um... And they had no idea what the reasons were for the distinctions. Well, you know, I don't think God is an arbitrary God. I think that he has reasons why he does things. And so I don't know that I buy into that one. Um, Some say that the distinction is cultic, which means that uh, the reason the Israelites were to regard some animals as clean was that pagans used them, uh, I'm sorry, as unclean, was that pagans used these uh, animals in their worship or associated them with their deities. And avoidance of these unclean animals then was a mark of the Israelites' faithfulness uh, to the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? Some scholars say that, well, the distinction is hygienic. And those who hold this view uh, was that the unclean animals uh, were unfit to eat because they uh, carried diseases or uh, were unhealthful. And, you know, actually this view has gained popularity in the last several years uh, as we have become increasingly more concerned about health care and the application of medical science to what we eat. Some view the distinction as being symbolic. And this view sees the behavior and habits of the clean animals as representing how the Israelites were to behave. And um, in this view, the uh, unclean animals represented sinful people. That's, that one's kind of far-fetched to me. Um, some think that the distinction is aesthetic, based on the animal's appearance. And you know, that one seems to also be uh, entirely subjective. You know, um, a cattleman can look on a cow and think that's about the most beautiful thing in the world. And you and I would look at it and say, hey, there's flies and junk coming out of its nose. So, you know, that seems pretty subjective. Um, Some say that the distinction is ethical. And that's really similar to um, uh, number four. Um, And the animals chosen there, the clean ones were... uh, chosen to uh, show reverence for life. Um, In looking at this, um, 
I don't know if y'all use soniclight.com much, but Sonic Light is a website that's uh, available for free on the internet, and it includes all the notes of Dr. Tom Constable, who's a DTS prof. And uh, it is a great resource, okay? And so I would strongly encourage you, uh, as you uh, are looking for outside sources to help you understand what you're reading in the Scripture, to use Dr. Constable's notes. He has notes on every book of the Bible, and it's done verse by verse. And so when you're, look, when you're stumped on a passage, it is a great way to go, hey, let's see what uh, a scholar who's spent his life studying Scriptures has to say about the particular uh, uh, verse that's at issue. And so uh, Dr. Constable concludes that probably a combination of the reasons is best. Although he goes on and says, the basic idea underlying holiness and cleanness seems to have been the idea of wholeness and normalcy. And if you think about it, that makes sense. God seems to have regarded imperfection or abnormality in the animal world as unclean. So there you have it. Uh, um, You know, you can pick your favorite reason for why there's a distinction between unclean and clean. These are six reasons that the scholars have offered. Um, Dr. Constable's view is that it's likely a, a combination of uh, uh, one or more of uh, those as an explanation. Uh, but it, it's not surprising, is it, that God would uh, um, pick for clean animals, animals that don't carry disease uh, as a matter of course. And if you think about it, you've got two million people living in close proximity to each other with nothing around them and them having to be responsible to gather food, uh, the manna that God provided in the quail, and also to take care of their water and whatnot. And so you can think that people living in that close proximity, if disease got started in the camp, it could literally wipe out a huge portion of the camp. And so for the laws of cleanness and uncleanness to help regulate the health of the Israelites only makes sense. And uh, in the New Testament times, the Jews appeared to have regarded their food laws as symbolic of the division between themselves and the Gentiles. Okay? And so if you think about it, when the uh, Jews looked at um, their separateness from the Gentiles, what did they do? They looked down on the Gentiles as uh, unclean. Okay? And so, you know, if they are God's representatives to the whole world, which was their mission, just like our mission today, um, and if they look at a section of, you know, the, the big chunk of the world that they are supposed to be uh, God's witness to as unclean, that really impedes your witness, you know? If I'm sitting out there sharing my faith with someone and I go, you know, that person uh, is unclean, quote-unquote, that's a hindrance. And I think that was one of the ways that the Jews missed it and one of the reasons that they missed the Messiah because they had gotten in this, you know, little holy huddle where, um, you know, God belonged to them, they had the monopoly on God, and uh, they weren't going to uh, let it out with the rest of the world as they were called to do. And so, gang, if we sit in this church and all comfortable and enjoy fellowship with each other and whatnot and make no impact uh, 
out in the world, we have failed as a church. And that's one of the reasons that we put such an emphasis on external focus. Okay? Yes, we should come together and celebrate uh, the bonds that we share in Christ. But what we're called to do is to be witnesses for him uh, out in uh, the watching world. And if you look at, I've been uh, doing a staff study um, on the book of Revelation. And it's really been fun. We've been reading Revelation 2 and 3 where we've, um, John, um, actually Christ writes and uh, John passes on letters to uh, seven churches in Asia Minor. And the f- common failing of the churches that were uh, in trouble was that they had stopped being an effective witness for Christ. And so you've got the Ephesian church there uh, where um, 30 years before, Paul described them as loving Jesus with an undying love. And now 30 years later, when John's writing, he's writing that they have left their first love. And you know, gang, we're doing well as a church here at Watermark. You know, I think that because you are out in the world living for Christ, a Watermark church is having an impact. But the question is, where are we going to be in 30 years? That's not going to be my problem. That's going to be, you know, the problem of the young people in here. Okay? Um, But we can be um, a church that's continuing to make an impact, or we can be a church who, like the Ephesian church, um, has um, left its first love. And the question is, what will we do? All right, now I'm not sure how we got off on the book of Revelation, but, um, you know, the bottom line is that these Jews in the first century used the food laws to separate themselves from the Gentiles. And that was a miss on their part, just as if we today were to separate ourselves uh, from the unbelieving world would be a huge miss on our parts. So they're called to be a part and to uh, be giving testimony to this holy God in whose presence they're living. All right, chapter 12 uh, deals with childbirth. And, you know, when you first read it, it may seem that there's really no apparent reason or rationale for the material in Leviticus 12 to be in there in that particular place. And so you've got to ask yourself, why this and why here? But the terminology of Leviticus 12 alludes to the curse involved in childbearing, childbirth in Genesis 3. And it again suggests that uh, uh, beyond the parallels in Leviticus 11 to uh, uh, the first part of Genesis, uh, the further arrangements of topics in Leviticus may also fit within the pattern of Genesis 1 through 11. So check that out for yourselves. Be like the Bereans. And so... If this is the case, then the purpose behind the present structure may be to portray that the spread of ritual defilement in Israel's camp uh, is a reversal of God's original plan of blessing. Okay, so just like in the uh, um, the uh, first chapters of Genesis, and so we're dealing with two situations that cause uncleanness. You've got uh, moral transgression on the one hand, and you have ceremonial defilement on the other. And so, you know, we can understand moral transgressions. We've got plenty of those around us. Um, That causes uh, spiritual defilement. 
But ceremonial defilement, on the other hand, this ritual uncleanness, did not necessarily mean that the defiled person had sinned. Some practices that resulted in ceremonial uncleanness were not morally wrong in themselves, and a perfect example of that is childbearing. Uh, So we shouldn't think sinful when we think unclean. It doesn't mean sinful, but it just simply means uh, impure. Impurity restricted the Israelite from participating in corporate worship in the tabernacle. Okay, And so the underlying principle is that God's holy nature, nature demands that all who experience the physical aspects of this life such as, you know, in chapter 12, the process of childbirth must be sanctified to enter his presence. And it's interesting that we learn from Leviticus 12 why uh, Mary uh, brought two birds for an offering that's referenced in Luke 2. In Luke 2, 22 through 24, she brought two birds that indicated that, hey, they couldn't afford a, uh, I can't remember if it was a bull or a goat or a lamb or what, Uh, But um, the Lord provided, as we talked about last week, um, different uh, levels of uh, sacrifices so that everyone could participate. And it indicated that uh, she and Joseph didn't have the resources to be able to bring the uh, more expensive offering. But it also showed that she was a sinner, and since she was offering a uh, sin offering... And it showed that God uh, was concerned about making the opportunity to uh, make offerings to him available to everybody. Okay? So as you think through, don't get hung up on all the details of Leviticus 12, but understand that, hey, there is a connection with what God was doing uh, in the first chapters of Genesis. And understand that uh, um, cleanness versus uncleanness uh, deals with, particularly in that case, ceremonial defilement, uh, deals with something that uh, simply represents impurity in the presence of a holy God. And so therefore, um, the woman after childbirth had to wait for a specified period of time and do some things uh, that would then allow her to resume worship uh, in, and to come and present offerings in the tabernacle. Okay? Does that make sense? Yes, ma'am. Well, one of the birds was used as a sin offering just as a general covering. Okay? Does that make sense? As a general covering, not necessarily related specifically to the uh, um, act of childbirth. Childbirth is not a sinful act. It is not. It's a physical act. And so you have to remember we're dealing with holy and common, uh, physical and spiritual. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Um, ah, thanks. Um, the, the question was, what is the significance of the number of days? Okay? And uh, um, the commentators can't make up their mind on that. Okay? Um, why it's longer for a girl than uh, a, a girl uh, giving birth to a girl versus a boy, they don't know. You have a, a hot sports opinion on that one, buddy? All right, so when Andrew gets up here and we have a chance to uh, do a little dialogue, we will answer that question if it can be answered. Uh, but I give you uh, the, the advanced clue is 
um, they're not sure. Okay? And if Andrew's sure, we're going to be breaking some ground tonight. you got to like that. All right, let's keep moving. All right, so now here we come to Leviticus 13 and 14, conditions of the skin. And, you know, if there was one condition that would wipe out the camp um, quickly, it could be a disease related to the skin. And so here we start off, um, and, you know, this is a great illustration of what Moses does to help uh, his readers. And each of the three parts in um, chapters 13 and 14 begins with the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. You can see that in 13.1 and 14.1 and 14.33. And it closes, this is the law for da-da-da-da, okay? That's in Leviticus uh, 13.59, 14.32, and 14.54. And so those little markers will help you understand and be able to divide up uh, the sections as you go along. And it's interesting, uh, uh, scholars have noted that the language of the Hebrew text in Leviticus 13 and 14 is similar to that of Egyptian medical texts. And, you know, that's probably not a surprise because, you know, what, how was Moses raised? Well, he was raised as a uh, son of Pharaoh's daughter in, you know, undoubtedly educated in the finest um, uh, traditions of Egypt. And so it's likely that he probably had read uh, Egyptian medical texts. And as we go, you can uh, uh, divide uh, chapter 13 into two parts. We deal with the diagnosis and uh, the treatment of uh, skin abnormalities. And then we deal with the diagnosis and treatment of uh, uh, issues uh, in clothing and similar articles. And then the same thing in uh, chapter 14, you can divide it up into the law for cleansing lepers and the law for cleansing lepers' houses. And note that the houses one was something that was a, a future thing because obviously as they were living in the desert, they didn't have houses, they had tents. Uh, but it, this uh, is even modified by the little uh, uh, statement, when you come into the land, when they come into the promised land, okay? And so in each of the uh, um, different uh, four different uh, sort of conditions that uh, Moses was dealing with in 13, you see a pattern for um, how he was treating each one of the cases, You have a preliminary statement of the symptoms, then you have a priestly inspection, and then you have uh, the basis for the priest's diagnosis, and finally you have the diagnosis itself and the consequences. Okay? So chapter 13 is broken down in a nice orderly manner where you can kind of get, okay, so we're dealing with four different types of uh, issues there. Uh, uh, Some scholars have identified as many as seven different skin diseases Uh, in there. And so you see that pattern to help you understand what Moses is trying to do as he walks the uh, Israelites through teaching them how to uh, deal with these different issues. And so if Leviticus 13 is bleak, speaking of separation from the Holy Presence, Leviticus 14, on the other hand, is full of hope because in it, the sufferer, by doing these cleansing procedures, is restored to the community and uh, restored to the ability uh, to come into the presence of a holy God. And so in that, uh, the Israelites learn even more about the nature of uh, God 
through these provisions for restoration to fellowship. And uh, um, it's a great teaching opportunity to learn something about God. And so the procedures described uh, are not curative. Uh, He's not teaching them how to um, treat or cure leprosy, but they're ritualistic. And God um, prescribed no treatment for the cure of leprosy here, but he explained how the priests and Israelites could recognize when the skin had been healed so that formerly afflicted folks uh, were able to resume worship and to resume living in the community. And the final four verses in this section draw the instructions uh, concerning the abnormalities and other uh, coverings to a conclusion by summarizing them and explaining the purpose for uh, this collection of uh, um, um, cleansing procedures. And the emphasis in the whole section is on God's provision for cleansing so that something corrupt could be consecrated once again uh, for use and for worship. And so where had they seen this just played out? Well, they'd seen it in the life of Aaron. Okay, so Aaron, um, while Moses is up on the mountain in uh, um, the book of Exodus, um, is with the people and, uh, you know, they say, well, Moses is gone and we don't know if he's coming back and so we need something to worship and, um, you know, why did you ever let us leave Egypt anyway? And, you know, uh, we see Aaron's great explanation that, uh, well, we threw some gold in the fire and out came this calf. And so um, you see a guy who had had a huge failing as a leader in Moses' place who then had an opportunity to uh, uh, make recovery, and we see him consecrated again, or re-consecrated, if you will, um, as he was dedicated to the priesthood. And what does that show? Well, gang, it shows that as long as you're still drawing breath, that God is not done with you, okay? He still has a purpose for your life, and so don't give up. He still wants to use you for the things he created you to do. You know, Ephesians 2.10 talks about um, the good works that were created beforehand that we might walk in them. And that's what he's calling us to do. Um, And so my tendency is uh, to say, oh, man, I blew it. Uh, I'm done. That's it. It's, you know, I'm of no use. Let's uh, just pack our bags and go home. But that's not the way to be. Aaron demonstrates that because he made recovery, and he was consecrated to use as the high priest. And uh, uh, we're going to see here in just a minute that uh, when the next episode of idolatry strikes the camp, the priests are not involved in that. It's the people. Okay? So don't give up is the uh, uh, bottom line. And you say, you know... Uh, as the flood was once necessary to cleanse God's good creation from the evil that had contaminated it, as we read about in Genesis, so the ritual washings in uh, um, chapter 14 were a necessary part of checking the spread of sin in the camp and its results, um, and checking the spread of uh, um, disease, and to permit the community to uh, be restored or the people in the community to be restored. And it's always fascinating when you read about um, just the problems of leprosy and the treatment and, uh, or the, uh, um, how the Jews were to deal with it. 
uh, it's great to compare how Christ himself dealt with that. And so what did he do when he came into contact? There are two different episodes where he has contact with lepers, okay? And so um, what does he do? He reaches out and touches the leper. You can read about this in Matthew 8 and Mark 1 and Luke 5. Um, he touches, in each one of those accounts, he, uh, they report that he touched that leper. And you know, the Son of Man came in a way to change the dynamics, okay? He, re- he gave the true interpretation of the law on the, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so he was not made unclean by touching this leper. And today, we are no longer separated from um, lepers uh, except for medical reasons, okay? Um, you've seen the same thing with the HIV sort of virus and whatnot, and you see that we had the opportunity as believers in Christ to reach out to people who are uh, suffering from diseases. You saw that in the Middle Ages with the black plague or the bubonic plague. Uh, who was taking care of the people who were dying? Well, it was Christians who were willing to go in the presence of uh, disease and whatnot. And so uh, when Jesus came, he instituted a different sort of setup. Things changed when the Son of God was here on earth, and uh, as a result, we don't have to worry about satisfying the Mosaic law. We live under a different law, and that is that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so when our neighbors are having problems, we are to go to them and take care of them. You know, uh, Jesus' outreach to lepers was on a par with his ministry to other sick people and social outcasts, such as tax collectors and prostitutes. He reached out to those people. He came to seek and to save the lost. And so, you know, his uh, ministry of reconciliation is what we have to carry on today. All right, chapter uh, um, 15, let's take a quick look at that. It opens with an introductory statement and closes with a summary. And we really have a, a pattern in uh, the uh, four central sections of um, 15. We've got a definition of the type of pollution, a description of its consequences, and an explanation of the appropriate rite of purification, which usually involves simply washing and waiting until evening. And so, you know... The banning of the sexual and the sensual from the presence of God may have been one of the most noteworthy characteristics of Israel's religion because it uniquely distinguished them from the other religions, the religion of the Canaanites and whatnot, the temple prostitutes and the uh, cultic use of of prostitution. And um, um, in doing this, it really set the Israelites apart. And so I think God is very clearly saying here that sex and any aspect of it and any bodily functions connected with it uh, had to be kept completely apart from the holy place. But he was not saying that sex was, uh, um, or that bodily functions uh, either were either dirty or sinful, but he's teaching the distinction between the physical and the holy. And so anything connected with sexual function was part of the physical world and was categorized as common, not holy. And so for the Israelites, sex was never brought into the sanctuary. 
unlike the nations that surrounded them. Okay? And so the bottom line is that sexual activity was not a way to enhance spirituality or commune with God like the other nations did. They were to keep themselves pure, and when they came into the presence of a holy God, they were to be pure. And in section in, or, uh, chapters 17 through 20, we see a real shift to the affairs of uh, everyday life as the uh, Israelites are called to be God's holy people. And scholars, in fact, call that, that the section um, from 17 to 26 the holiness code because of the frequency of the occurrence of the phrase, uh, you shall be holy uh, because I am holy. And one other phrase is characteristic of uh, 17 through uh, um, 26. We see repeated over and over uh, the phrase, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord your God. And you know, what's interesting about this is um, that it addresses not the priests as such, but it's addressed to the whole congregation of Israel. And so it calls the whole congregation to holiness. Okay, it's not something you can say. Well, you know, you're a priest, so you got to take care of the holiness thing, and I go live my life like I want to live my life. But each and every one of the Israelites were called to live holy lives because they all were to be priests, because they all were to have a ministry of reaching out to the people around them, just like you and I have the opportunity to reach out to the people around us in our jobs, in our neighborhoods. Uh, in our families, and we're called to be um, priests, representatives of God, reaching out to them. Um, let's spend just a minute in Leviticus 17, 1 through 9. We deal with something, the uh, sacrifices uh, to goat idols. And you know, this is uh, just briefly mentioned, and it's somewhat mysterious, but I think it portrays the Israelites forsaking the tabernacle and going and offering sacrifices outside the camp, which they were commanded not to do. Remember when we, uh, our little chart on the offerings? Each one was to be brought to the tabernacle. And so the content of the narrative is really similar to the golden calf incident. Uh, the people forsook the Lord there and his provision for worship, and they followed after other gods, um, both there with a uh, um, golden calf, and here with some goat, goat idols. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, the blame in the uh, uh, golden calf incident was put on the priests, whereas here the real blame uh, uh, belongs to the people themselves, and the priests had learned their lesson. And so the, the placement of the holiness code right here uh, underscores that God had laws and was speaking directly to all the people, okay? And so it's characteristic of these chapters that they um, pertain to specific situations in everyday life. One of the things I want to point out in Leviticus 17 is uh, uh, Leviticus 17.11, where it talks about the life of the flesh is in the blood and says that we're not to eat the blood. And, you know, it just underscores that God is all about uh, life, he is the living God. He is concerned with life. In the New Testament, we're told that the Spirit gives life. And Jesus offers the abundant life. And he gives living water. 
And uh, uh, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And um, uh, we're told that the word of God is alive. And so I think it's fascinating to look at how, how God um, illustrated that, you know, when you're putting your hand on the head of that animal and offering a, it, that animal as a sacrifice in your place, that animal is giving up its life, its blood is being shed for you, for me, okay? And so um, by refraining from eating flesh with blood in it, you know, we're really, uh, man is honoring life. And so to eat blood for the Israelites was to despise life. And you can read in uh, Genesis 9-4 where the sanctity of human life is associated with not eating blood. And so one of the purposes of the law, uh, of the um, further explanation of this principle in Leviticus, is to teach respect for life. Um, But, you know, it's an interesting irony because Jesus told his followers what? That unless you drink my blood, you can't have any part of me? Okay? And that was something that caused his people to say, hey, we can't handle that because the law teaches us something totally different. But he was not talking about literally drinking his blood. What he was saying to them is, unless you believe in me and you commit to follow me totally, you can't really have any part of me. Unless you put your full trust in me, then you can't have part of my life. Does that make sense? So, even though he used that picture, it was something that would cause their heads to snap around because of what they had learned in Leviticus. Okay, so he used it to get their attention, and he used it to teach the principle that we must be willing to give him everything. Just as with the uh, um, offerings, you had to bring the best portion. He wants all of us uh, to be committed to him, to be fully engaged with him. All right, uh, I'm going to skip over uh, Leviticus 18. It really uh, shifts uh, from the ceremonial defilement of 17 to moral impurity. And, you know, seven times in 18, uh, the Israelites are told not to behave like the nations who inhabited Canaan before them. And I want to spend a little time on uh, um, Leviticus 19 before we get uh, um, Andrew up here. Um, Leviticus 19 has been called the highest development of ethics in the Old Testament. This chapter, uh, probably better than any other one in the Bible, explains what it means for Israel to be a holy nation. Take a look at uh, Exodus 19.6 to uh, compare that. And so this chapter really stresses the... uh, connection between one's responsibility uh, to one's fellow man and between his obligation to God. And so those two um, dimensions of life were never to be separated. You know, today we get uh, spun up in the secular sort of um, sacred uh, divide or the secular spiritual divide, okay? But there is no secular spiritual divide. God wants all of me in all aspects of my life. God wants all of you in all aspects of your life. Your life in the community, your life in your family, your life everywhere. And so 
our relationship with God is to impact all that we do in all those areas. Okay? And so there isn't a part of our lives, and this is what Leviticus 19, whoops, what did I just do? Peter, can you get me back? Um, Thank you. Um, There's nothing that I can do that isn't um, within the full realm of what God wants to be fully involved in. One of the things we've seen from Leviticus is that he cares about the details. He cares about the details of our lives. And so he wants to be fully involved in each and every one of your lives. There is no secular uh, spiritual sort of divide uh, for the, the uh, Christian who uh, believes Jesus and uh, who seeks to live his life in accordance with biblical principles. We're called to live out our relationship with God in all arenas to which we have access. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that this church says, hey, we are not here as a staff to um, minister to each and every one of you. We are here as a staff to equip you to go out and minister to others. Does that make sense? You are priests, and you are to engage in your priestly function. That's what Leviticus is teaching the Israelites. You are to engage in your priestly function by living holy lives in the presence of God and then being his representative. The New Testament calls it being his ambassadors uh, to go out and reach a watching world. And so there's no spiritual secular divide. We are in full-time Christian service, whatever we're doing. When I was practicing law, I was in full-time Christian service if I was doing it right. Okay? And so wherever you are, and that's the other thing, I will never be able to go all the places that each of you get to go. And so if I can equip you to go and be God's representative, to be God's ambassador in that place, then I have done my job, okay? And you are the one who has gifts and talents and abilities and spiritual gifts that I don't have. And so God will use those gifts not only to build up this body, but also to use those gifts to go out and reach people in places that I'll never have access. And... Uh, it was true today for uh, the New Testament times and afterwards. It was true in the Old Testament times as well. Does that make sense? All right. Somewhere along the line, I've started preaching. Um, one of the points about Leviticus 19 that I think is pretty cool is that there are at least 28 negatives in there, you know, kind of the thou shall not sort of stuff. But it's bookended by two reminders of the positive relationship between uh, the Israelites and God. And what it teaches us is that holiness is not so much an abstract or mystic idea as a principle in the everyday lives of you and me, of the Israelites. And so holiness is not attained by leaving the world, not uh, by being monk-like and renouncing you know, human relationships and whatnot, but by the spirit in which we fulfill the obligations of daily life in its simplest and most common uh, details. And so by uh, doing justice and love and mercy and walking humbly before our God, that's how we make a difference in everyday life. 
And so, as uh, Schultz notes, the underlying emphasis of Leviticus 19 is maintaining a daily relationship with God. And that's what we're called to do. This chapter uh, has quotations from or allusions to all ten of the uh, Ten Commandments. And probably its most important verse or most quoted verse, um, it's certainly in the New Testament, Leviticus 19.18 is quoted more often than any other verse in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus comments on it in the Sermon on the Mount, he really didn't give it a new spiritual meaning, but what he did was he corrected the Pharisees' uh, interpretation of it that limited simply to external action. Okay? And um, what's important in dealing with our neighbors, you know, Leviticus 19.18 says that we uh, shall love our neighbors as ourselves. And what's important with that is what's important in every aspect of our lives, and that is the heart. Where is your heart? And so as you uh, deal with the heart issues, and if you get the heart issues right, then you're able and equipped to reach out to other people and to be the hands and feet of Christ today reaching out to other people. Okay? And so the Lord was after the heart uh, whether it's today or whether it was in uh, um, Old Testament times. Okay? So, chapter 20 concludes with an exhortation and warnings about being obedient to God's ordinances. And, you know, in light of their unique calling by God, they were to live their lives different, differently from other people. They were accountable how they dealt with their fellow man in all their relationships. They were to be conscious that they belonged to God, and they were to go live that out. And so you see running throughout um, Leviticus 11 through 20 that God's people must visibly embody um, the character of God. And um, you can see it there at the bottom on the principle and in their choices of food, in sickness and in health, in their family life, in honest and upright dealings with their neighbors, uh, in their love of their neighbors, they were to show the world what God is like. And you know, gang, we have that same responsibility today in the way we live our lives. That's why Leviticus is so pertinent for us today. Because it teaches us how to live in the presence of a holy God and teaches us how we're to deal with others in respect of his holiness. Okay, Leviticus uh, 21 and 22 deals with uh, priestly holiness. And, you know, the office of the priest was uh, holy. The office was above the man. They were to be holy in body and upright in con- conduct and uh, ceremonially clean. And then I love this. Um, the section also contains requirements for sacrificial animals, because they were the priests of the animal world, okay? And so in all these things, we see um, the um, priests being called to a higher purpose. And as believer priests, as believers in Christ, and uh, priests for him, ambassadors for him, we have a higher calling too, okay? We're first to love God, and then we're to go out and love others. Okay? All right. So now the fun begins. I want to get Andrew to come up here.
Come on up here, buddy. Y'all be preparing your questions. Grab the uh, mic over there. And first, I want Andrew to start off by just telling us a little bit about himself and to uh, um, talk a little bit about uh, your studies. And yeah, you can use that. I'll move my stuff out of here. Um, and, uh, you know, just tell them a little bit about what you've studied and introduce your family down here and we'll get rolling. Oh, hello, I'm Andrew Summy. And uh, I feel like with all the weeks that he's built up, I, I, don't, I don't know where to go here. So, uh, but this is my family, or at least part of them, my wife and my three eldest. And then we have two more, so five children total. And uh, I actually grew up in Dallas. I went to TCA, Trinity Christian, uh, for high school. And then uh, for the college year, first year of college, I went over to Germany and studied uh, the Bible because the Bible is so much better in German. Um, No, I'm just kidding. No, and I didn't learn German at all, actually. But um, so I was over there at a Bible school, and that's where I actually met my wife, Carla. And uh, during a couple semesters, I took a month and I went over to... To Israel, and in that month in Israel, even though growing up in a, in a church and, and, and going to a Christian school and uh, going to a Bible school, that one month in Israel is just like pow. You know, everything was in 3D, everything was in color. Uh, I could see it. You know, people were walking around. You know, for example, last week I spent some time with uh, with an Israeli on a business trip, and uh, you know, we're sitting down at Zusi Shushi which, you know, isn't a very kosher restaurant. And, um, and we're ordering various things that we're all going to share. I was with my brother, and, and, uh, and I, I got something. I think it was the San Antonio roll. I didn't even notice that it had a crab in it. So, you know, that all comes out, and he's like, oh, I'm not going to eat that. So he, he still followed it. He didn't follow it to, quite to the rabbinical level, but he's very aware of what he's eating at all times. So that's just a little tangent there. But uh, so went went to Israel, saw a lot of this in action, saw the Bible, saw the way it was practiced differently, and I was just I was hooked. So I wanted to study it. I went to school in Canada. Um, my father-in-law is still convinced that I uh, followed my wife to Canada because she is from Canada, and that's why I wanted to go there and study. Uh, so I went up there near Winnipeg. How many people here know where Winnipeg is? Okay, there's, ouch. <laughs> My, my kids know where Winnipeg is. So I uh, we went and, and uh, studied near Winnipeg, Jewish and Christian studies, which is historical backgrounds. I, I didn't want to get into too much theology. Theology kind of was too big for me. I, I wanted to just study history and what happened, very specific to the uh, Second Temple period or the time of Jesus. So after that, um, I was going to go looking toward my master's. We had a pause, a tragedy in the family. My, my brother passed away uh, in a car accident in 2002. And so that just kind of was a very tough couple of years. But then my wife prodded. Boom. We went to New Jersey to study for our master's in Jewish Christian studies and studied some more of this. Now, the, the paper that I was talking about that um, I was able to, to study on women's... Um, uh, issues uh, was for my senior uh, thesis in my undergrad, and I think it was just kind of partially. I, I didn't know if you know everyone's studying Paul or, or something you know in the Gospels, and I was like, you know, I, I want to really go off, 
you know, outside the box. And, you know, no one, no one did anything on Leviticus so in my class. And so I, here I am. And not only that, but women issues and so on. So I read all kinds of stuff on why 30 days for the male and 60 days for the female and what does it mean and what the rabbis say about it and everything else. So I'm not going to get into that right now. But You're not going to answer the question for us? <laughs> Come on, I think you ought to answer the question. <laughs> well, I, there's no answer, right? There's no there final go. answer to it. But my favorite answer, and that's what you often, and, and, and that's what you see. Jewish commentary, and this is what's a lot of fun. When you go to a Jewish hall like this, first of all, if you went to a Jewish study of the Torah, it would be extremely loud. I could barely talk because all of you were talking. I mean, that's the type of nature. And the study halls are very loud, lots of argumentation, and their commentary is usually about four or five different opinions, and then they just move on to the next subject, you know, so they don't even answer the questions. But my favorite answer, and I'm doing the same thing right now, but my favorite answer uh, to that is woman somewhat inherits the original sin and the pain of childbirth. And so you do offer a sin sacrifice kind of in, in memory of the historical sin. Now, then why 30 days for male and 60 days? Because the female carries that on again. But there was an argument against it, and this is the one I like. You know, so, she, so the idea is that the woman carries in childbirth pain the history of that sin, you know, the, the, the original sin from Adam and Eve, How, or the original curse. My favorite one is, is that the woman is actually um, holy because in the act of childbirth, she is participating in the creation of life. And w- there's, there's, there's an understanding in the Bible and Judaism where uncleanliness doesn't necessarily mean bad. We've kind of taken that on. Uncleanliness sometimes means being set apart by an action that is actually too holy for the earth. So the idea is that the woman in childbirth is, in a sense, too holy for us. So she must be set apart. And then having a woman, a, a, a woman child, a baby girl. <laughs> a woman child. <laughs> baby girl. In uh, having a baby girl, she's carrying that life to another generation because she will participate in that. So that's why there's extra time. So it is a little bit like pick your favorite. But, um, but those are a hey, part Dr. of Hey, Dr. Constable must have missed that part. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so... Talk a little bit about um, yeah. how you ended up over in uh, Israel for a year and okay. what that was like. Uh, my wife and I, we, we volunteered in Israel. I, as soon as I went the first time, I was only there for a month and then went back and studied. And the whole time we were dating, I was like, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. So we went to Israel and um, spent two years there. Uh, or no, not two years. One year. One year. Uh, just seemed working like two years. with what's that? It just seemed like two years. <laughs> seemed like two years. Uh, one year and uh, working with an organization called Bridges for Peace, which was a Christian organization, and, and we did various work there in the land, helped uh, a food bank and home repair, and so going into a lot of these homes and just an incredible experience. So we spent a year there. I wasn't studying formally, but everywhere you went, I mean, we, we camped, you know, on, on the side of the Galilee. And one of the mo- most interesting parts about that is here you are on the Galilee camping. 
But at the same time, there's a bunch of teenagers not too far away, you know, doing disco, you know. <laughs> and, you know you're like, but I'm on the Galilee. This is where Jesus walked on water. And then the next thing you know, you know, a car drives by and a policeman pulls up and, you know, and all kinds of things are happening. And it just kind of reminds you, you know, holiness is often right in the midst of just everything happening. And, and, and I think that's one of the biggest lessons is Leviticus literally takes you right into the middle of everyday life and says, yeah, that thing that's normal, that's holy. Or that you need to take a pause and look at this a little bit more closely. Or and it's about just being aware, being present in the every, you know, everyday moment of life. Um, really. so, so I spent some time there and then came back and studied. Um, and we went for a master's. And while I was up there, I got a job uh, with the Jewish organization. We were living in Boston. And in Boston, I went to, we went to a church called Park Street Church, which is one of the oldest evangelical churches in the United States. And the pastor there was going to do a sermon series on Leviticus. And That's a brave pastor. Right, right. Well, he described it as this is the sermon series where sermon series go to die. <laughs> you know, so, so he was pretty brave. But right around that time, there was a very popular book. Maybe some of you heard it. The Year of Living Biblically. Have you heard of that? Anyone? A.J. Jacobs? Yeah. Okay, there we go. One person. We got a reader. Um, so we have, uh, we, that was a popular book. And it was a, about an agnostic who tried to live the Bible as literally as possible for one year. So he he. He wanted to take that idea and apply it to this sermon series. So he wanted to get some volunteers to live the Bible or live Leviticus as, as they want to or as literally as they want to for one month. And then we would blog. Facebook was brand new. We were putting things on Facebook and just kind of our own take and our own interpretation and so on and so forth. And he did his sermon series kind of jumping back and forth with our stories and videos of trying. And we, one guy like tried to do an offering in his apartment and burned a cake. And, the, you know, the sirens are going off and the wife is laughing. And um, I, I took a video into our shower. We were renting a place and there, I saw some mold. And I was like, ah, there's mold in the house. So got a video camera and showed, you know, so I could show the, the church, you know, hey, there's mold in the house. I don't know if we were supposed to tear down a rental um, apartment. But so over time, it became a a series of articles in Christianity Today, and then it became a how to be perfect. And so this is his book. And it's it's a fun, interesting read through Leviticus. And this is the way it was described kind of um, his idea behind reading Leviticus. He said, if reading Leviticus succeeds only in making you feel bad for being a for uh, feel bad for being a bad Christian, you've missed its point. Leviticus isn't in the Bible merely to show you your need for grace. It's in the Bible to show you what grace is for. The ancient Israelites were already chosen people before God laid down the law. God didn't choose Israel to be his people because he knew they would be law-abiding citizens. God chose them because he loved them. The law's purpose was not to save anybody— Rather, its purpose was to show a saved people how to live a saved life. So that was kind of his take on it of, you know, in, in just understanding Leviticus, I remember just studying with um, a professor and just really laying out what the world was like at the time that the, the uh, Torah, which actually is closer to teaching than law, 
uh, it was translated in Greek, noma, uh, nomos for law, but um, it's, it's more of like a teaching. So if you approach it, wow, I'm going to be taught something. It's sometimes a little bit easier to, <laughs> to swallow. But uh, it was just such a radical departure from that ancient world. It would have shocked. I mean, reading every one of these, what? You can't do, what? It says to do that? What? It can't do that? It would be absolutely shocking. I remember this one professor at a conference, and I think he was joking. I'm not sure because some of them were quite interesting and liberal. And he said that the Ten Commandments were, or the commandments, Ten Commandments especially, was given by aliens, actually, um, and not by, you know, anyway. But, I, but it was a very interesting lecture because it actually highlighted this was very, very, this couldn't have come from this planet at that time. Um, so this is what it, it described we our family. We reject that. Um, just for anybody who's listening at home, we reject that idea that the Ten Commandments <laughs> yes, came from yes. aliens. Ten Commandments was not given. Well, in a sense, he is from another planet. Anyway, we won't argue that. He's okay, different. So <laughs> he's holy and we're not. Right, right, right. But he's there not an go. alien like Superman. Um, so it so, said, so what were what were some of the big takeaways you took? So you lived, tried to live right. Levitically for thirty days, right? Okay, and so what were some of the big takeaways that you took from that? Well, buddy? and it was really one is is that doing it as a group was key because coming together and expressing it and sharing something in that process is, is huge, uh, and. There were absolute moments. I, I, the only other experience that I could compare that experience to, because it was actually a really hard month. It was a really good month. Um, but it really, I mean, when you start being very careful, you start seeing things that you would really not want to, you really don't want to see. And the only other experience uh, that really is uh, similar uh, would be coming to Regent here uh, at Watermark, and uh, just facing that and walking through the 12 steps. The 12 steps experience going with a group is basically very similar to imagine going through a large group of people and going through Leviticus and saying, okay, this is, this is what our life is going to be now. We're going to change the way that we've always done things, and we're going to, to one, yes, admit we're powerless. We're completely uh, dependent upon God because you get very discouraged really quickly. And, and, and the point isn't to be discouraged, but you also have inside of you this yearning to do it, to do what's right, to be holy. And the only answer, once you start working and facing it, and this is only a, a month, and I think much of it I've thought about since then, but going through that, it makes you realize that yearning to continue to come to God is his grace, is his grace to pull you back. And so rather than looking at it as like, oh, I messed up and, oh, you know, it's all over, but to keep being open and pulling back. And I, I started thinking, I know you guys went through sacrifices last night, and you can mm-hmm. cut me off. I'm sorry. I, I no, tend go, to, keep going, um, buddy. Uh, sacrifices last week. Kind of like Regen. Regen, you know, they ex- express in one of the steps, you know, make sure, you know, confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. You know, that phrase is very important. You confess your sins so that you can be healed. Now imagine, you know, the ancient, you know, people going up to the temple or to the tabernacle and, you know, I got the sheep, you know, and you're walking next to another guy and the, you're like, 
what's your sheet for? Yeah. <laughs> you know? What you it, do? It forces you to be very open. You know, you can't walk around and say, you know, and then on top of that, you're like, you're, you're, you're killing your livestock. So, you know, your sin is, is costing you something very real. So you saw it very clearly. And in the process, you had to name your sin in the process of that sacrifice in front of a priest and in front of others and in front of all the people that go up there with you. Um, and, but at the same time, it was a, it was, it was kind of like a big barbecue. You know, I, one of the things I went up and I, and I saw when in Israel was, uh, where the Samaritans are still sacrificing. There's still Samaritans. Um, there's about 6,000, give or take a couple thousand. I, it was very interesting. But they, they have their holy place on Mount Bracha, which is the Mount of Blessing, uh, up in um, Samaria, in the Shomron in Israel, up in the hills. And they still uh, do sacrifices. And I got to see the area where they do that. And uh, just as a side note, they make the best tahini, which if you've ever had tahini, it is, they make the best tahini. But um, uh, where they made the sacrifices, or where they did the sacrifices, it, it's kind of shocking. It, it was like metal bleachers, you know, so you could sit down and watch. It was like metal grates, and it was all painted blue. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, you want to imagine this ancient cultic, you know, stone altar. But you realize, you know, they're up there, and, they're, they're, and when they do the sacrifices, it really is a party. And it's really fresh, good meat, because they keep the best lambs and the best, you know, meat for that time. And they, and they enjoy it for during the uh, Samaritan Passover and the various sacrifices they do. And you realize it's, you know, it's basically very fresh meat and, and a really, really good time with family and to, you know, enjoy that time. So it kind of broke that idea that this would be really weird to see. Um, it's actually really shockingly not that big of a deal in that, in that sense. Hey, did y'all hear what he's saying? Okay. The ideas that are behind some of the things that he experienced both in Israel and also, um, as he spent a month living Levitically, uh, were the ideas of community and doing it with each other to encourage each other along the ideas, uh, from region about being transparent and authentic, and to um, have the opportunity to be um, able to uh, confess that, hey, I'm not perfect, uh, and share that with each other and spur each other on to um, take ground in becoming um, more uh, compliant with the Mosaic law the Israelites had a chance to do, and today, in Regen and um, other things around this place, we have an, each, uh, an opportunity to spur each other on to take ground in becoming more like Christ. And so, you know, whether it's the sacrifices in the uh, Old Testament times, whether it's uh, uh, doing the things that we're called for to do in Leviticus, or trying to do them now, or simply trying to live for Christ on a daily basis, those same things are important. The idea of living life in community, living life transparently, living life in an authentic manner, recognizing that we are in the presence of a holy God, and our lives are called to be holy as he is holy. All right, 30 seconds to conclude, buddy. (laughs) Well, 
I don't know if I have 30 seconds <laughs> to conclude. Uh, but just overall, just what he said. Um, going through Regen and, and taking those steps or even applying a lot of the aspects of what's in Leviticus, uh, you know, especially chapter 19, you know, a lot of times we think, oh, we've we got to wait until we've done something really bad that can be kind of held up on a pole and say, oh, man, you've done something really bad, so you've got to go to Regen and, and so on. What I realized in that process of, of going to Regen or thinking through a lot of the, this is for every single believer to get in a habit of, of being transparent, of being open, of being uh, repentant. You know, one of the things that they always said is, is like, you know, you, you, you know, the only way to, I, I've heard it said before when I was younger that in order to be saved before you had to follow the law perfectly and because you can't follow the law perfectly, then, then um, Jesus came and, and all that. And, but I, one thing that always confused me about that is in order to follow the law perfectly, so to speak, the first five books, if that's what, what, what is meant, a big part of that is assuming that you're making mistakes and you're repenting and offering sacrifices. So it's this interesting uh, reality that in order to follow God properly, there's, all, there's an assumption of mistake, and that's when the New Testament says, if you, you who say you're without sin are a liar, but really to say, wait a minute, Yes, we're, we're, we see who God is. We see how perfect he is. And we can thank him for his grace and his provision. And we thank you that he loves us and we're saved. Now we can begin to learn. Now we can begin to take steps. And if we have in our heads like, man, this is horrible. And doing things of the world would be much better. It just shows you how deceived we are and what an illusion we see before our eyes. So, yeah. All right, buddy. Good. Um, Scott, come on up here, buddy. Good job. Thank you. Um, Before I bring Scott up here, uh, just one thought. You know, as we uh, close, think back uh, about the sacrifices, okay? There was a sin offering included and a guilt offering included for a reason. God did not expect the Israelites to be perfect. He was after their hearts, and he was after building a relationship with them. And the same thing's true for us today. He doesn't expect us to be perfect, but he does call us to pursue being like Christ so that we can be with uh, uh, legitimacy his hands and feet reaching out to a watching world, okay? Uh, And the grace thing is that he continues day after day, moment after moment, to continue to reach out to us to have relationship with us. And how great is that, that the God of the universe wants to have a personal relationship with each and every person in this room. And then he wants to turn around and use you to reach out to people in your life. Now that gives me goosebumps, because that is a privilege.